Welcome to the AJHP podcast series. The American Journal of Health System Pharmacy is the official journal of the American Society of Health System Pharmacists, an association of pharmacists committed to helping patients make the best use of medications. For more information about AJHP, please visit www.ajhp.org. This is William Zelmer, a contributing editor of AJHP, speaking with the lead author of an AJHP paper entitled Biological Contamination of Insulin Pens in a Hospital Setting. The primary author is Dr. Michelle Herdman, who is Assistant Professor of Pharmacology in the Department of Pharmaceutical and Administrative Sciences of the University of Charleston School of Pharmacy in West Virginia. Michelle, let me ask you this. Uh, Insulin pens, of course, are labeled for individual patient use. However, it is known that in some hospital inpatient settings, an insulin pen is sometimes used for multiple patients. At the time of your study, what was known about the potential risks associated with the use of an insulin pen for more than one patient? Well, we collected our samples in the first few months of 2009, And I really felt like a lot of what was known was kind of speculation that the FDA and so forth, they felt like disease transmission was possible if the insulin pins were used on multiple patients, but there weren't a lot of studies and not a lot of concrete evidence that said, yes, there's definite backflow and there's definitely something being pulled into the pins that could be injected into the next patient. And a lot of the studies had been done on just usage and patient satisfaction and things like that. There had been some reports that patients had seen air bubbles and maybe a little blood in their insulin pen cartridges. So that, I think, was what triggered some of the early concern. And then there were a couple of studies, one done in France and one done in Japan, that actually had looked at squamous cells, were squamous cells pulled back into the pins, uh, how many pins had air bubbles in them, and some of those pins aren't on the market now. And the Japan study actually used a rubber tube filled with dye to see if there was dye pulled back into the pins to try to mimic that process of blood maybe being pulled back in. And they found that at that time in 2001, about 30% of those pins pulled dye back into the insulin cartridge from the simulated injection site. And that was where some of that concern was coming from was they were seeing the bubbles and the blood. And then these two studies showed that there was some backflow, but they weren't really comprehensive. And at the time we started, it was a little bit older and then right as we were conducting the study, some of the warnings from the FDA were coming out, which I think we're going to talk about those. Sure. So just pick it up from that point then and uh, explain what was your study specifically designed to assess? We first wanted to look at a current pen that was on the market and the hospital system that we use, they only use one pen type. So that worked and We wanted to look for all cell types, squamous, uh, any blood cells. As, again, we'll talk about shortly, we also found some macrophages. So we really looked at any nucleated cell and then also hemoglobin from maybe broken up red blood cells. If they were being pulled back in and they were damaged, 
then maybe there was free hemoglobin that could be detected. So we looked at all of those white blood cells, red blood cells, uh, macrophages, uh, squamous cells, all those tissue types to see if they were being pulled back into the insulin pen. And so did that pose a risk for the patient? You know, is there a, a real potential for disease transmission? Mm-hmm. Well, we'll leave it up to the listeners to read your published paper for detailed information on your study methods, but please give us a high-level overview of the methods you use in this study. Okay. The pins we use were actually returned to the pharmacy after patient discharge, and so all patient identification was removed, and they had to have had less than 250 units of insulin, so that way we knew that they were actually used while they were on the floor. The Vials were removed from the plastic casing, and then they were delivered to me for processing in the lab. And I removed the stopper and then took the insulin out and then used some uh, sterile rinse insulin just to try to get any residual cells that might have been uh, in the cartridge. And after that, we centrifuged the insulin to pellet the cells. And in order to test for hemoglobin, we used a little bit of the supernatant in a test that sort of works like a pregnancy test. And so you get the two lines if it's positive for hemoglobin and one line if it's negative for hemoglobin, very similar to that. And then we removed the rest of the supernatant, most of it, and we resuspended the cells. And we used a device that is used in cytology departments and also hospital labs. I used it in a hospital lab when we were looking for cells in fluids like spinal fluid and body fluids where if you've got a spinal fluid and you, you need to see if there's one white blood cell in your sample, you can't miss even one cell because that could be an important indicator of a spinal fluid infection. So I thought this would work because we want to see if there's even one cell in the insulin pin cartridge. The device that we use has a microscope slide and then it is uh, covered with filter paper and it's in a plastic casing and it has a little area to put the sample in. And you just put your few drops of the sample with the cell suspended in it and you centrifuge it. And when you do that, the sample actually flats onto the microscope slide and all of the liquid is wicked away on the filter paper and the cells are left in a little square that's in the filter paper. So every cell should be in that little square on the microscope slide. And then you can stain it. And I just used a right stain since we were looking mostly for blood cells, but also the squamous cells would stain just fine as well. And so you're concentrating all the cells in that little square and you can scan the whole square with a microscope and so you don't miss any cells. And so that's how we could see that if there was just one cell or two cells, we would we knew that we would find them. And then any cells that I found were identified by a pathologist because obviously... I have a med tech background, so I'd know the blood cells, but then the, like the squamous cells, those are from deeper in the tissue, and I hadn't seen those before, but I knew, you know, I could identify a nucleated cell, but I didn't know what type it was. So we sent all of them to a pathologist to identify and confirm. Mm-hmm. So the study was done in two hospitals, is that correct? Yes. We have a hospital system here, and we used one of them is a mostly a uh, labor and delivery hospital. It's women's and children's issues. And so we use other hospitals in the system where they have more uh, diabetic patients. And how That's many women. samples did you have uh, altogether? 
We had 125 samples. Based on mm -hmm. other studies, we thought that that was a good number to start with. Sure. And, and what did you find? We actually found that we had seven samples that were contaminated. And that's almost 6% of our samples were contaminated with either cells or uh, hemoglobin. Mm -hmm. Do you want me to get more specific into the types of cells we found and, and that type of thing? Just briefly, I think that would be uh, okay. of interest to listeners. Okay. We found both some squamous cells, which these are nucleated squamous cells. As squamous cells get closer to the surface of the skin, they start to dry up and lose their nucleus. And so those aren't necessarily the ones that we were we were looking for because those are kind of everywhere. We're, we don't like to talk about it, but we're always shedding squamous cells everywhere. And, and those can still be a concern because they can have bacteria on them. But we were more concerned about the, the deeper tissue. So we, we wanted to see those nucleated cells. So these were squamous cells from under the surface of the skin. And then we also found macrophages, which reside under the surface of the skin as well. They're there to catch any infection that might cross the, the skin. And then we found a, one red blood cell. And then we also had one uh, sample that tested positive for hemoglobin with our uh, little kit. And those were not the same samples. And some of the samples had multiple cells in them. Uh, one of them had, I think, three different squamous cells and then multiple macrophages in one case. And then others just had one cell type. Mm -hmm. Well, given that insulin pens contain a preservative, does that in any way affect your concern about your findings? I don't know if it affects my concern. Maybe it affects the level of my concern because we do know that the preservatives are going to kill some of the organisms. But as we started doing our research, the preservatives that are used, which are uh, Phenol and amcresol are older preservatives, and there really aren't a lot of studies that show the spectrum of activity, especially on organisms that we're concerned with now, like MRSA. I couldn't find anything that looked at phenol killing MRSA or amcresol killing MRSA. So those organisms still become a, a concern. So is every organism a concern? No, because the preservatives are going to kill some of them. But then we have other issues like viruses, and we didn't find very much information about those preservatives killing viruses, particularly nothing on when the viruses are inside of the cell because you have these intact cells. If they're harboring a virus, that preservative probably isn't going to get inside of those cells. And there is some information that the preservatives are actually inactivated by organic material, so they may get inside the cell and be degraded, and so, so those viruses are just replicating and replicating, and so that's definitely a concern, HIV, hepatitis C, uh, hepatitis B. In, in this article, part of the reason the warnings were issued by the FDA and the Institute for Safe Medication Practices is because there were some large-scale instances where healthcare providers in a hospital setting were using pens on multiple patients. So they had to bring all of those patients back in. And that's one of the main things they tested for was HIV, hepatitis B, hepatitis C, to make sure that those viruses weren't being transmitted because that's what we 
know less about. And then, of course, there's mm-hmm. intracellular bacteria and what is the dose of the organism, how many organisms are actually being pulled into the pen. Is the preservative enough to kill all of the organisms? So I think there's still some, lots of reason to be concerned, but the preservative helps, but it may only kill maybe the organisms that are on the surface of the skin. Mm-hmm. You've mentioned the alerts and the warnings issued by uh, the Food and Drug Administration, the Institute for Safe Medication Practices, and also uh, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention have weighed in on this issue. Uh, going, Some of these warnings go back to at least uh, 2009. Uh, why do you think this practice continues, that is the practice of using a pen, insulin pen for multiple patients, why do you think that uh, it continues to occur in hospital inpatient settings? Well, one of the, I want to say first that I certainly hope that uh, people don't think that we're picking on uh, nurses because a lot of the instances that happened were nurses on the floor using these pens. So I certainly don't want to say that, oh, it's a nursing issue. I think that there's quite a, a few issues. Some of it is just convenience that you have a patient And there's an insulin pen and the patient in the next bed needs insulin and maybe the pen has not arrived from the pharmacy yet. Maybe orders haven't been processed. So as a matter of convenience to give the patient the medication they need, the healthcare provider will switch out a needle and think that that's enough. So I think that in that convenience, they're not realizing that the risk still exists, even though you change the needle. Because we've been training in hospitals for a very long time that we never share needles. Needle sticks are a concern. We we just don't share needles. And so everybody knows that. And so I think that they're not realizing that the risk exists after they change the needle. I think a lot of it is education on that specific issue because we know that hospitals do excellent infection control training. I worked at a hospital for years as a medical technologist and we went through extensive training on bloodborne pathogens and all the JCHO categories of of training and infection control is a big part of all of that. And so it's not that hospitals aren't training, but I think that people aren't recognizing that the risk still exists, even if you switch out the needle. And so I hope that that's what our paper will highlight is the risk is still there because we're pulling material up into that cartridge that could be injected into the next patient. And so that risk is definitely there. So I would say that uh, definitely there's the convenience issue of, well, you know, I need to treat the patient. So I'm going to do what's best for my patient right now and work on that expediency patient care first. They're trying to minimize the risk by, of course, changing the needles, but then just not realizing that that specific issue of risk still exists, even though they changed the needle. Mm. One thing that we really haven't talked about that an important point that needs to be made is this isn't just a hospital issue. It is also important for the home setting as pharmacists educate their patients and nurses educate their patients on how to use their pens in the home setting. They should also emphasize that there shouldn't be sharing because of the, the risk of disease transmission among uh, if they're sharing with family members or or friends, we we need to educate about that as well. Very important point. Michelle, uh, what about other research? Are there um, uh, other things that need to be studied to further 
make this point regarding patient safety and just single patient use? I think that you could probably go in two directions. And even though it's not my area, I actually think that maybe the more important area to go into is, is outcomes research and looking at if there are changes in training that specifically address this, will the incident rate go down? And then even reporting, are these incidents actually being reported? Because if this is happening in a patient room and it's an isolated incident, is it being reported at all? And so making that awareness and then looking at those incident rates may actually be the more important research. You could, of course, go down the line of looking at which pathogens are viable in the insulin. Can they survive? Looking at that spectrum of activity on phenol and metacresol and will they kill MRSA and some of those really serious pathogens. But now that we know that the transmission risk is real, I think it's more important to look at how we can change the behavior of the workers so that these incidents don't happen. So yeah, I think you really have the two pathways, either one that you can go down. Mm-hmm. Well, Michelle, uh, this has been a very important discussion on an extremely important paper in AJHB. Thank you so much for taking time to discuss it with me. Thank you very much for inviting me to participate. That concludes this podcast. For more information, please visit www.ajhp.org.